there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, it's that time of the week again. Advanced Medicine on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Dr. Rashid Bittar. We're going to get into what we perceive to be a, a flu propaganda campaign uh, uh, utilizing a tragic circumstance, a very tragic circumstance. And uh, some people look at these things and they say, never let a tragedy or a crisis go to waste. Uh, we're going to get into that in just a moment. Dr. Bittar, how are you, my friend? I am doing well, Robert. How about yourself? Yeah, as I met, we were talking a little bit over the break. Uh, a week ago, I broke a bone in my hand, and, you know, the energy's been sapped all week just a bit. You're trying to trudge through it. In fact, I did a lecture midweek, well, toward the latter part of the week, a local lecture that, you know, when you're on purpose and on mission, you find a way to overcome stuff. But I probably was not good for my healing. And then since that time, I put on a, a, a larger brace to really support the joints above and below the break. And it's really accelerated the recovery since then. Yeah, immobilization on any type of a fracture, whether it's uh, uh, an angulated fracture or just a simple fracture, the immobilization of the joint is crucial to rapid healing. And it actually, the person tells you they'll actually pretty rapidly heal. The problem is people end up, like you, using it. But I assume if you were lecturing, you weren't like, you know, using your hands to do anything like welding or something like that. You assume too much, my friend, because I actually, I actually took my radio equipment and set up the radio equipment to do a live broadcast, and I was just being a doofus, and I learned the hard way afterwards, like, that, I shouldn't have done that, and since then, I've done the right thing. You didn't get, a, like, a, a hammer and then drive stakes in there to stabilize your tent and all that stuff, did you? <laughs> I, did, I did not go that far. Ha- Halloween had, uh, I'm not sure if Halloween had passed yet, but no, regardless, it was bad enough. The inflammation made it scary for the kids who came to the door. But, no, we're good now. I'm on the mend. Thank you. Uh, there, there, there's some serious stuff, as always, we got to cover when we do advanced medicine. And the first story you sent us, and it's about a doctor's son who died apparently 10 days before a flu shot appointment. And now this has been used as a rallying cry that everybody must get a flu shot. You don't want this to happen to your child. Now, this is a disaster. Any child that dies, this is, our heart goes out to you. But there are some sp- suspicions that I have. And, and, and number one on the list, if this doctor was in the United States, and we'll see if this is the case, maybe Super Don can say so. But, well, in fact, yes, they're in Texas. So tell me how in Texas there's not a drugstore on every street corner, practically the whole state, that you can't walk in without an appointment and get a flu shot anytime, and they'll give you a discount on anything you want if you do so. For this story to start with, I had an appointment for 10 days from now, and if I had just gotten in a little earlier, my son would be alive. This, this part of the story just, just strikes me, something's wrong. Yeah, I think that that was, uh, it was, as you said, our Spidey senses, our Spider-Man senses were uh, tingling. Uh, I, when I read that news, that's the first thing I thought, wait a second. I mean, I can see that, well, you know, I've got an appointment in 10 days, I'll just go there. But the point is, a physician should know that viral 
influenza, you know, the flu, it's, it's a self-limiting type of a condition. There's no drug that you can give. Yes, there's the new uh, antivirals that have come out in the last 10 years, but as part of that, you know, the, the way to treat the flu is hydration, vitamin C, bed rest. That's how you treat it. And to lead to this huge conclusion that if I'd gotten my flu shot, well, wait a second, let's look at that. Even if he had gotten the flu shot 10 days earlier, and, and let's say that the, it was something with, with the immune response that, you know, she's hoping, or the, the doctor, the husband and wife, like the both doctors, were hoping they were going to get an immune response. Are you telling me that in 10 days they're going to have enough of an IgG, IgG, IgA, IgM, IgS uh, antibody response to protect them from, you know, and it's, it's usually a, uh, in this particular situation, you're looking probably at an IgE or IgA type uh, antibody immunoglobulin mm-hmm. type response. But, you know, that takes 14 days. That it, you know, 10 to 14 days. My point is that even if they had gotten that flu shot, and even if the flu shot was really the cause of this child's death, which, as you said, you know, it's a hard to go out to anybody that's just lost a child, but to lead to that conclusion that it was the flu, and then to say that if, that they would have, the flu shot would have prevented them from actually, uh, from this child from actually dying. I mean, that, that's like a, that's like a massive leap. It, well, it's an unprovable leap. It, it, it can't be proven or disproven. So to say it, it becomes a marketing slogan or a campaign. And by the way, as I'm looking in Texas, apparently uh, it's against the law to vaccinate children under seven at these uh, pharmacies. So, okay, maybe it wasn't that easy, but what about the dock in the box? All of those, you know, little emergency boxes that you can go to. I don't know that there's a law. Well, Robert, I mean, again, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to, something that came to mind, but go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that if, if they really needed or felt that they needed the shot, uh, again, I just, I am, this is an after the fact scenario. Hey, let's take advantage of this tragic story and scare other people that this could happen to their healthy children. But again, healthy? Who defines healthy? Why should a two-year-old die of influenza this day and age unless there are under, underlying conditions, uh, uh, excretory pathway congestion? You know, that they cannot handle the burden that happens with an immune challenge like this. We define health perhaps differently than much of the allopathic community. Well, my question is very simple. If this child has gotten the flu shot, um, I am very confident that the ultimate unfortunate circumstance that occurred would have probably occurred not 10 days, but maybe five or six or seven days. And we certainly would not have heard about this story, nobody would be talking about the fact that the child has a vaccine and then died seven days, eight days, nine days, or ten, whatever. Nobody would be hearing about that because we know that that happens all the time. In vaccine injection constantly is happening all the time, every day. I have no idea how many times in a minute it's happening, but we do know it's happening. Do you think that this story would be talked about or discussed had the child had an adverse response after having the flu shot? Well, it wouldn't be used as a propaganda campaign for flu shots, of course, right? So the point is they, they advocate for the flu shot based on an unprovable statement that had this child, as you said, gotten it 10 days earlier, wouldn't have gotten the flu and wouldn't have died. Again, based on the amount of time it takes to respond to develop potentially antibodies that may not even match up. Again, this goes to the heart of the immaturity of the media and the medical mafia promoting a flu shot agenda that don't even acknowledge the fact that our immune systems are much more complex than having an antibody or not. You don't need an antibody for in, to influenza to overcome it successfully and safely. There are so many other things going on. If you're really healthy, you might not even succumb to it. 
that's exactly the point, that if they were healthy, the child was healthy, they're not going to have the same um, negative effects as a person whose immune system is intact. You take two individuals, one that has an intact immune system, one that is frail, is nutritionally deficient, is, is toxic. The one that's toxic and is nutritionally deficient is not going to be able to be as resilient. Their immune system is going to have more burden on it. It's, they're not going to respond as well um, and as strongly as a person who has a healthy, intact immune system. So that's really where the focus should be. And if the child had had a vaccine, a, a flu shot, I can guarantee you that looking at their metabolic processes and looking at the toxic load, their immune system would not have been as intact uh, as the child was without getting that, that flu shot in the beginning. Because mm-hmm. if you start looking at the additives and the preservatives and all the other stuff, the formaldehyde and the nickel and the mercury and all the DNA addicts, are you telling me that these people that are doctors, right, are you telling me that they think that having all those foreign substances, all those antigens, you can ask them, hey, do you know what a happen is? Do you know what an antigen is? Having all this extra garbage in the body, do you think that that's going to end up helping your child, uh, their immune system being more more, more intact? Or is that going to mm-hmm. be a load on the child? And well, if, they, if they're really physicians, they're going to know the answer. And Dr. Batar, here's where we should also make a distinction in terms of our focal point uh, in terms of uh, response or prevention. We're never into boosting the immune system, are we? We look to modulate immunity. We want the immune system to be more efficient at what it does. We don't need to hyperstimulate. In fact, it's argued that the vaccination itself and many of these vaccines are charging the immune system into hyperfunctional states where they are overreacting and even creating autoimmune reactions. In other words, the immune system begins to attack the cells of self. So if anybody is doing the wrong thing, it is those that are advocating these toxic injections. That's exactly right, because the adjuvants, those, those things that they call adjuvants, they are actually designed to create a stimulatory effect on the immune system to get a hyperimmune response. And the problem is that when you're creating a hyperimmune response in conjunction with giving substances that are immunosuppressive, it's like having a person in the middle of uh, in the middle of uh, two trucks that are pulling on the opposite side. You're you're driving, you know, you're driving forces on opposite extremes, and so net effect is you're going to tear the system apart. I mean, you're going to if I have a, a truck tied to my right arm, my left arm, and you're pulling it either way, you're going to tear that system apart. It's, it's just not it's not designed to work that way. First of all, and then sure. secondly, as you said, when you when you hyper stimulate and the immune uh, system, you're driving the system into a certain arena where you don't need to drive it. You're whipping a horse, although the horse is tied. You're whipping a horse to go right. It's just like you've got to tie down so you can't go to the right or to the left. So now what are you going to do? You're going to exhaust that immune system. You're going to drive it into the ground. And you're also, uh, without even realizing it, what they're doing is when they're driving that immune system into a hyper-responsive state, then the body's other mechanisms that are designed to function in a certain balance, you create a compensatory type response. So the body responds in a hyper-tenuous, all these changes that occur because you've created a sympathetic mimetic reaction. You've created a stressful reaction. So now your adrenal glands are firing. You've got B vitamins and minerals that are being burned at an excessive rate because your body's in a stressful situation, which now prevents the body from having the nutrients and the supplies that it needs to build an immune response, to it's completely going in the wrong direction. And then, and then, Dr. Batar, as this child, unfortunately, was in a hospital, 
What does the hospital do in such cases of triage? Do they not suppress the symptoms? Do they not also compromise the liver and the excretory organs? Could they not be complicit? Not intentionally. I don't mean they mean to, but complicit in the down functioning of a body that was responding appropriately, that if it was modulated as opposed to suppressed or hyper-excited by the vaccination, as they're arguing for everybody else, could this have turned out differently? We're not playing Monday morning quarterback. We're giving you principles to consider long before a tragedy like this would ever happen to you or any other children. Stick with us. Lots more to go. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. is so good it requires no expiration date the robert scott bell show all right thank y'all for being here robert scott bell show advanced medicine hour two and monday if you're listening and watching live also on youtube uh, dr batar has got it streaming out through his uh, facebook feed as well and of course gcn our home and broadcast radio syndication uh, I, I was mentioning about what happens when you go to a hospital the triage thing you know we've acknowledged that Life and death can be in the balance when you're in an ER room with, with severe symptoms, particularly with, you know, accidents, physical trauma. But with influenza and the immune response, the things that they do in allopathic medicine can be counterproductive, Dr. Batar, or am I exaggerating? No, they can certainly be counterproductive. So the use of immunosuppressive drugs to reduce the inflammatory cascade, to reduce that that massive immune surge, which the vaccine is designed to do in this particular case, in this scenario, but, you know, you've got a lot of inflammation, the trauma, the penetrating trauma, lung trauma, but any type of situation with this mass inflammation, the use of steroids is a standard um, part of the treatment protocol. So they want to tone down the immune system so it doesn't cause that massive inflammatory cascade. The problem is now, again, you know, you've got this immune system that you're giving these adjuvants to. Now you give the steroids, which is going to suppress the immune system. It's going to suppress other aspects of the immune system, too, that weren't designed to be stimulated by the, by the vaccine aspect. Because remember, the vaccine is trying to stimulate the antibody response, which is specifically limited to the CD19 or the B lymphocyte. But you've got other components, too, in the immune system. You've got the CD3, CD4, and um, 16, to 56, you know, you've got the macrophages, and you've got all these other types of white blood cells. So when you're doing an antibody response, you're really stimulating the B lymphocytes which produce the antibodies. But, so you've got that particular part of the issue that you've got to deal with now because of what the hospitals are going to do, which, again, is a standard thing. If you've got penetrating trauma or you've got blood trauma, uh, you know, you do need to help suppress that massive uh, cascade of inflammation, but again, you know how against the use of pterodium in a non-trauma situation. In the, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in a non-traumatic situation, there is no place for steroids at all. Uh, even in like poison ivy cases and some of these things, you know, if it's extreme and the person is causing a problem where it's causing uh, impending airway or, or breathing issues, then perhaps just do, use it for temporary for for a right. day or two. But then I don't. Even then, I'm, I'm very, there's other things that we can do that we do do. But then sure. on top of that, if you're in a hospital situation, then you've got the other issue of nosocomial infections, which are drug-resistant bacteria, viruses, pathogens. Uh, you've heard about the MRSA, right? Methyl-resistant 
staph aureus. Staph aureus is everywhere, but methyl-resistant staph aureus is, is a type of staph aureus, it's a common bacteria, that is resistant to antibiotics. So then it causes all sorts of problems. So now you've got these nosocomial infections, these infections that are resistant to the normal, uh, normal antibiotic regimen that, are be, that the child is being exposed to, that the patient's being exposed to, on top of the fact that getting the child immunosuppressive, I mean, you know, the, the safest place uh, is not the hospital in a situation like this. I, I, and it's, you know, it's no. a sad thing to say, but when a person is sick, I, I've had other doctors tell me this themselves. You know, when, when you get sick, the, the, the most dangerous place is the hospital. You don't necessarily want to go to the hospital. Now, right. again, in a, you know, I'm, I'm saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I'm not saying that totally sarcastically, because if a person is immunocompromised, you don't want that person in the hospital because they will die from an infection. It's sure. guaranteed. I mean, well, and, and how many times does a, does a child get brought to the ER? And the, the first thing they ask is, is this child up to date on all vaccinations? So you're in the throes of a, a devastating cytokine storm, and then you give mercury and aluminum-laden vaccines. Maybe they respond with Tamiflu. Maybe they respond with Tylenol for fever, which is the most liver-toxic drug that you can imagine. Uh, and and you, know, you add to the mix, and you go, I think it's very plausible and not an exaggeration the least that this tragedy could have been averted had this child not gone to the hospital. And again, I, I, I wasn't there, so I'm not saying definitively, but based on what we know of how they respond and react, they could be culpable in the death of this child, not in absence of a flu shot. Well, Robert, I will just go on to say that if you look at the statistics as published by John Hopkins, the third leading cause of death in the industrialized world, and I think specifically in the U.S., again, yes. this is not some random, you know, a uh, study that was done by a non-recognized entity. This is John Hopkins, which is considered to be the number one medical school in the United States. As published by John Hopkins in the New England Journal of Medicine, I believe it was, or it may have been in JAMA, I can't remember which journal, but either one of those two are very prominent medical journals in the U.S. Yep. And both of these, the third leading cause of death is iatrogenic causes, causes of death that are due to doctor-induced uh, issues. Well, and that's why we do advanced medicine each and every week to get you beyond it, above and beyond it. We've got a lot more healing to go. We'll talk about heavy metals impact on cholesterol levels, why you should or should not care. Also, skin cancer updates, too. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. It is advanced medicine time. Dr. Batar and I talk about some things that you won't hear anywhere else in broadcast media, and certainly not in this way. And, you know, we talked uh, the f- whole first half of the show with you about, the, you know, the, the, the flu shot propaganda, uh, the tragedies and how they are used to propagandize people. And, you know, another propaganda campaign in the 20th century was the propaganda campaign against cholesterol. In fact. And that the idea was that we needed to now move all into carbs. And, of course, what replaced cardboard uh, to make it taste good was sugar, <laughs> more carbs. And it created a disaster. Of course, that ultimately would elevate cholesterol, interestingly enough, and maybe a way that is not indicative of the danger of cholesterol, per se, but of its protective nature. But I've got an interesting question about this, this next story, because it relates to cholesterol, which we know is not the cause of heart disease. But they're saying 
with lead and mercury exposure that they have measured elevated levels of cholesterol. Why could that be the case? Well, it could be possibly because cholesterol is trying to protect the body so it's a hyperimmune response from the oxidative stress caused by the lead and the mercury. In other words, the mechanism of action of toxicity, I know, Robert, that was a rhetorical question, but I'm going to take the opportunity. <laughs> answered anyway. Yes, yes, because yes. The, because the lead and the mercury, their mechanism of action is through oxidation or oxidative injury, also known as the reduction reaction in chemistry, and it causes a phenomenon called lipid peroxidation. And lipid peroxidation is where the cell membrane basically gets um, shoot up and becomes friable and, and it causes massive, massive damage. And um, the micro-injuries that are taking place on the epithelial wall uh, on, on, the, on the vascular tree, within the, within the vascular tree, um, the body is trying to protect those microvascular damages that, where, where that lipid peroxidation is taking place. So what it does is it lays a groundwork, um, uh, like a patch, if you will, or a band-aid, and it consists of fibrin and fibrinogen and calcium, which acts as the framework of the matrix, and the cholesterol comes in and covers it all up, and over time, it builds up and builds up and builds up. It's like a callus is what it is, trying to protect those areas that have microvascular damage, and that's what leads to atheroma formation or atherosclerosis, and that's where heart disease starts. Now, when you go in and you do a bypass, uh, bypass operation, you know, you do a... a a, a, a cabbage, a coronary artery bypass graft, you cut that vessel, and now you take out the plaque and you take out the segment that, that's what they call disease and then you put it back together, then you would think that if microvascular damage over time causes this plaque formation, then when you go in and you cut the vessel, that's a macrovascular damage. It's not micro anymore. So you would think that it would actually get worse faster. And that's exactly what happens. The New England Journal of Medicine published this in the 1980s, that uh, after bypass, the rate of atheroma formation, the rate of blockage in the vascular tree increases Goes up. tenfold. Tenfold. That's a thousand percent. You created a massive inflammatory cascade that just doesn't quit. Uh, not that easily. And exactly. Doc, Dr. Batari, you, you never... I don't know how to say it. Do you never underestimate the stupidity of doctors or don't you can't overestimate the stupidity of doctors? Because I'm reading this article about the mercury levels and lead levels, and it's interesting. I mean, there's nothing wrong with what they've identified. My gosh, we see higher cholesterol levels when we see higher heavy metal levels in the body. Okay, fine. What is your, what is your takeaway from this? Well, their takeaway is, my goodness, we really need to maybe direct people to cardiovascular doctors to get them on cholesterol-lowering medication because their risk for cardiovascular disease has now gone up because of the cholesterol, not the heavy metals. But it's the same thing, the same argument that I've said so many times to use. I have observed that every time there is a fire, there is a presence of fire engines. Therefore, I conclude that fire engines cause fire. It, it, <laughs> It's preposterous. It just doesn't. It defies logic. But this is what they're doing. They're they're trying to blame this issue on the lead and mercury. Lead and mercury causes microvascular damage in the cholesterol coming in in response to try to try to salvage the situation. And it's, I mean, this is a basic physiological concept. It's it's, it's a premise that is, you know, it's like you have to learn the letters A B C before you can put words together and write uh, a message or write a. 
uh, a letter or anything, right? You have yeah. to first know the basics of the alphabet. This is the basics of the inflammatory cascade that, that we're taught in medical school. Yet they're trying to say that lead and mercury is greatest cholesterol levels. Well, it's causing an increase in cholesterol mobilization to try to deal with the microvascular uh, damage because there's more need of band-aids. There's more need of trying to patch this area. That's why it's mm-hmm. so important to take out the causation, to take out the factor that's causing this, which is the heavy metal, to prevent yeah. the lipid oxidation. No discussion of... Yeah. No discussion of, of where's the source of these heavy metals. Let's clean that up. No discussion of let's make sure we get enough selenium and other things in their system to counteract it. No discussion of intravenous chelation in an acute scenario that really is going to pull these things out faster than anything you can, uh, you normally would need to, for instance. No, it's about let's, we've got to worry about the risk of heart disease because elevated cholesterol levels. Listen, cardiology as it's practiced today, if they still believe cholesterol is the cause of heart disease, it's, the, it's one of the main reasons why I call it a medical degree. I mean, these people are not using the intelligence God may have been given to the, given them. Well, it's, it's interesting that when you start looking at, you know, you said that there's no addressing the causation, where the, where the load of heavy metal exposure coming from. Then the problem is you'd have to start talking about the amalgam load. You'd have to start talking about... Mercury and vaccines. Uh, in the vaccines, exactly, the consistency yeah. of the vaccines. You'd have to start talking about, you know, the, the quality of the air that we're breathing, and you'd have to start talking about all these other exposures of heavy metals. You know, you've got gas. When, you, when you're when you actually pumping gas in your car, there's, you're breathing in many of these vapors, lead, and cadmium, and, and mercury. But the, the vast amount of exposure, I mean, the, the worst type of exposure is actually through inhalation, but the mass level of exposure is actually uh, between inhalation of vapor as well as the vaccine that develops the amalgam load. But mm-hmm. notice the area that we really concentrate on, or when I say we, I mean the, the public, the, the media cover, covers, it's the fish. It's in the, it's in the fish, the level of mercury in fish, they don't, which represents, that's the methylmercury anyway, that may be maybe 5%, 10% of the issue. But what about the other 90% of the exposure? Nobody talks about that. Well, and and, and a significant part of that exposure is due to medical intervention, dental and medical. It's what they're doing to you. So they don't want you to know and identify it. Although this is amazing. This got published, as you know, anytime mercury is mentioned, it may or may not, but especially if they reference the term autism, which in this case they haven't. But cholesterol, it's okay. We want you to worry about cholesterol. Um, by the way, somebody asked, will natokinase uh, reduce cholesterol? I don't know that you, you need to, but the point of natokinase is, is kind of an enzyme to help, help prevent uh, um, clots and different things to thin the blood, not like a rat poison or Coumadin, but that's a kind of a dietary supplement way of uh, addressing it without poisoning your liver and kidneys. All right. Uh, uh, yeah. Natokinase and, and streptokinase, and there's many different types of... Uh, things that you can actually use to help to uh, increase the, basically decrease the viscosity and, and increase the uh, flexibility of the red blood cell. Natural ginger is a, is a great way of... Great way to do it too, yeah. And, and, and stop chasing cholesterol. If it's abnormally high or low, if they've challenged you over the years to find out something's aberrant has gone on, look to what's input, inputting in your diet your lifestyle, your environment, what could be impacting stressing the liver, as in this case, heavy metals impacting oxidative stress and damage to cells. All right, can we, yeah. can we move to the skin cancer story? Are you up for doing that? Well, I, not yet. How much time okay. do we have? Because it's an important thing about cholesterol that I want to bring up, okay? Okay, Very go important. ahead. We have three minutes or so in this segment. 
All right, so cholesterol, I'm, I'm just telling you guys my own personal story. Up until I was in my second and third year in medical school, everybody, I mean, I was told that I, I had a problem with cholesterol. I had a type 2B hyperlipidemia, which is a, a genetic lesion. Um, my mom had cholesterol levels, you know, the 1,500. Mine were 2,000, 2,500. My triglycerides were in the 1,500s. I actually was put on a statin drug um, I, my, at the end of my third year, beginning my fourth year of medical school, and I left it. Maybe for two weeks, I stopped it. I couldn't, I couldn't lift anymore. My, I, there was so much, you know, there was weakness. I, all sorts of weird things started happening. Um, and my cholesterol, I, I realized that, you know, I was told you can't drink any more milk. and no more whole milk. I just drink a gallon of whole milk. You know, don't stop eating eggs. You know, Robert, if I get two eggs a day, and as long as I'm doing my exercise, my lipids are probably anywhere from 250 to 400, 500. They used to be in the 2,000, 2,500. My blood was, my cholesterol was so high, and I've actually got on, on the cardiovascular DVD, no, you're awesome. I've got before and after uh, examples of cholesterol level, and that, those tests are actually of mine. Okay, those are my tests. Wait, you're, you're, you, you, you should be in the Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records for like 2,000 <laughs> lipid levels. No, you listen, know. listen, it's even, it's Robert, when they, they would, my staff would drop blood, they would be about one um, third of the, of the top of the, um, Test tube, one fourth to one third of the test tube was pure fat. It was pure fat. Wow. It's just like the, the, the grease that you see. That's how bad it used to be. But I've completely changed it based on two things yeah. diet and exercise. And that's all it is. It's all related to sugar. And the cholesterol that you're worried about is actually the body's way of protecting right. the system. You reduce, you reduce the, the sugar and you increase your exercise. I, now, whenever the, in the last five, probably last eight years, whenever they drop my blood, it's totally normal. There's no um, layer of fat in the top, and I've well, been on a fat party except for those two weeks when I was, you know, without medical school, which was 26, 27 years ago. Dr. Batar, you know, you've shared a lot of things, personal stories over the years. I'm thinking this may be the most dangerous thing you've ever shared because if, as Liam Sheff had, had posited that we are in the era of peak oil and oil becomes less and less available, they're going to come to you, Dr. Batar, and say, whatever lifestyle you used to lead, go back on that because we need to get oil from your blood to keep this thing going. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. But oil, you know, the, fat, the right types of fat are good. And remember, yes. cholesterol... It's demonized, but cholesterol in the wrong place is the problem. Cholesterol, normally, is a precursor of all the sex hormones. Without cholesterol, we would be an organic heap of mush. Cholesterol is vital to cell membrane integrity. So don't forget, cholesterol serves a very important purpose in, in, in our lives. And mm -hmm. dietary cholesterol is only about 5% relevant. 95% is, is already in our system. It's not what we're so doing. keep eating your pastured, free-range, organic eggs. You're not going to elevate your cholesterol levels impacted at all, really at all. So, folks, uh, again, what's that? Yeah, there's a biofeedback loop in the, in the body. It says, oh, we're getting it from there. We don't need to produce as much. Folks, stop fearing cholesterol. And I still am annoyed by all of our friends in the natural products industry that are selling products to lower cholesterol. Focus on liver health, hydration, mineralization, obviously removing heavy metals. Stop with the cholesterol. You've been duped. You've been lied to, and you're still parroting back. Remember when I said how your thoughts are not your own? Fearing cholesterol, you weren't born with that fear. It was taught. We'll be back to talk skin cancer for a final segment with Dr. Bittar here. Live around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell.
to go where the truth takes him. Here's Robert. All right, if you ever missed a show, plenty of places to go to catch them later or share them with your friends. Right here in GCN, GCNlive.com, or home and broadcast radio syndication. Later on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, UK Health Radio. I know Guy Fox Day is coming two days late for you listening to the show, but also advancedmedicine.com which we used to have medicalrewind.com. We'll have access to all of the archives of Advanced Medicine. Dr. Batar and I have done hundreds and hundreds of hours of shows together, and they never expire. They never go bad. Other than if we mention an event that will come and go. But other than that, all good, even today. Dr. Batar, we've talked about a lot of things today. We, we didn't mention the IDFW. Those of you who want to find out more at advancedmedicine.com, get out of the public health sector, become part of a private association, the the invitation code is 1358 for the Robert Scott Bell Show listeners. Anything you want to add to that before we go into our final story about skin cancer? Well, actually, I'll wait till you bring up the story about skin cancer because uh, it'll tie right back to the IADFW here in a second. Okay. So the, the headline reads, skin cancer deaths rates soar, mostly for men, according to this latest study. Skin cancer among men... Soaring in wealthy nations since 1985, mortality rates in women rising slower than or even declining compared to men. What is going on and is it the sun that has suddenly turned evil since 1985, Dr. Batar? And of course, selectively in men. It's turned evil selectively as men. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the, the thing is that it. I think that when you start talking about increase in skin cancer, but you can look at any kind of cancer that's been an increase in all cancers because there's an increase in toxicity on our planet, there's a decrease as far as the nutritional value of the foods that we ingest. So you have less resources that the body needs in order to have an intact and healthy immune system, and then we have more burden on our systems, not only burdens that we're being exposed to, but burdens that are sometimes introduced into our bodies, thinking that we're doing the right thing, preventive medicine. is a perfect example, right? Preventive medicine, the idea of preventive medicine in the medical community is to get vaccines. So this is this is called prevention and actually you're contributing to a toxic load in the system. And so that all throws off the balance in the body and it leads to increase in all types of cancer and all types of pathology, heart disease, everything. In, in skin cancer specifically, you know, there's a very important component. I tell my patients they need 20 minutes of sunlight every day. I recommend and encourage people to take off their shirt, you know, pull up your pants, get as much sun exposure as you can uh, for at least 20 minutes in the day. And the reason this is important is because of vitamin D absorption and and, uh, calcium absorption. Vitamin D is necessary uh, for, for calcium absorption. Robert, I can't believe that they actually just uh, froze me out of Facebook again. Um, I'm just thinking spiritual there. Yes, of so, course. Well, anytime we talk favorably about the sun and all the good that it does for you rather than causing cancer, which it does not, again, in the presence of ionizing radiation without adequate minerals to defend against the oxidative stress and damage, that's different, but that's not caused by the sun. It's caused by what you just said, the food devoid of the things that are needed to protect our healthy cells and maintain their health. And that's why you need that sunlight because sunlight is a major component in the presence of vitamin D to help the body absorb calcium. Calcium in the right places is essential for life. In the wrong places, it's pathognomonic, meaning that it will cause disease. Calcium inside of 
the vascular tree, calcium inside of joints, calcium inside of, you know, this is where tenosynovitis and arthritis and cardiovascular disease and old granular trauma disease of the lungs, because calcium is going in the wrong places. But calcium absorption, correct calcium absorption, is important um, to make sure that we're maintaining that, that cascade in the right direction, and that is that's what's needed to make sure that happens is vitamin D3 in the presence of sunlight. So right. that's an important part. I, I recommend that to all my patients, especially my cancer patients, in 20 minutes uh, of sun. And so I, I, I figured you, you were going to bring up Chris's story. Yeah, real quick, because we're almost out of time, believe it or not. But I know that you have a cancer patient who was uh, skin cancer melanoma, and uh, he's alive and well today, all these years later. wasn't caused by the skin. It was where the sun wasn't shining. Right, and I've, we've had a number of melanoma patients. Uh, Chris, was, Chris was given six months to live by Cleveland Clinic, and Mayo said he had a year if they took his leg. He had his leg that was 10 years ago. And for the IADSW members at the, uh, at the International Association for a Disease-Free World, Chris just posted there a couple of days ago, so you can talk to him directly and ask him his story. Very nice. Story to talk Beautiful. So, y'all, another reason to join the IADFW? Uh, I think you get it for a buck, a dollar for life instead of 99 a year or life. I don't know what it is. But anyway, it's super cheap, but it's worth so much more. It's so valuable. Thank you, Dr. Matar. Tell them what they need to know because it's time to go. Thank you, Robert. The power to heal is unequivocally yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Show.